Uh, so tonight, well first welcome, welcome back to our Roman study. And the message tonight is going to be on Romans the third chapter, uh, verses 1 through 20. And I've titled it, it's not a very catchy title or any clever title, it just says God's righteousness is greater than our unrighteousness. It's certainly more important. And so we'll be exploring that tonight. And as usual, I'll give them, um, read the scripture, give the message, and then open it up for any questions or comments. So now let me invite you to join me in a moment of prayer. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the reading, as I said, tonight is from the third chapter of Romans, and I invite you to listen to the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath upon us, I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if I, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way, and the way of peace they have not shown. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't think I'm telling you uh, anything that is a surprise to you when I say 
that God's people do not always act as God's people. And it's always been that way. We all know that it's true. We know it happens in our own lives. We know it happens in the lives of those we know. We know of people. I mean, we know of people who belong to a church, but rarely or never go, never attend. Then we know people who attend, and they may fulfill some kind of sense of obligation or requirement, but otherwise, they don't seem to be any different from the non-Christian people around them. In other words, they're not showing evidence of a transformed and changed heart. So, here's the question. If so many of God's people show so little evidence of being God's people, well, does that mean that the promises of God are ineffective? Does it mean that the righteousness of God is irrelevant? Are those who oppose the Christian faith, are they correct in their denunciations of the faith, if it seems so ineffectual to so many people. And I'm asking those questions because I think Paul confronted a very similar situation. Although in his case, of course, he is focused on his Jewish brethren. Both those Jews who chose to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus Christ, but still held to the Jewish teachings and traditions, and also Jews who had not made that decision to follow Christ. Now, just to briefly review, Paul has spent mo- had spent most of chapter 2 explaining why being a good Jew, in the sense of fulfilling the ritual requirements and trying to obey the law, doing all those things, how that is not enough for salvation. And he pointed out how many Jews were deceiving themselves if they thought that being for example, descended from Abraham through biology, through blood, or by performing the rituals of the faith would somehow guarantee their salvation. Paul was condemning two things. He was condemning ethnic chauvinism and he was condemning legalism in his comments. And again, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who has any familiarity to the writings of Paul. Those two themes are spread throughout all of his work. Paul's most memorable comment, I think, in chapter 2 is that the only kind of circumcision that justifies, that saves, is the circumcision of the heart, meaning a spiritual change. And, of course, that's not of the flesh. Now, as an aside, it could very well be that the actual circumcision could have been useful in itself in the sense that it would remind the person, the man, it was all talking about male circumcision, it would remind the man who would have been circumcised that he was part of the covenant with Israel, the covenant of God with Israel. So perhaps it would have some use there, but simply going through that ritual does not save by itself. And I think we would agree that Paul's words are just as relevant for the church today as they were for the Jews 2,000 years ago. Because, well, unfortunately, Christians are just as prone to such errors as were the Jews of Paul's time. In other words, this idea that if we fulfill certain obligations, if we do certain things, that is what will save us. There are Christians who believe that the sacraments have kind of a magic power that saves us. 
without considering the condition of our hearts. In other words, if you're baptized, the water saves you. If you take communion, the elements save you. Now, that's not what the Reformed tradition teaches, but nonetheless, there are a lot of people, whatever their background, who hold to a kind of folk religion, I think, where taking these things saves you. You know, it's like taking some kind of magic potion. Well, Paul, of course, was completely opposed to that kind of thinking, and he sets out why. Now, Paul begins this passage, begins chapter 3, by asking rhetorically if there is any advantage in being a Jew or in being circumcised. Now, by this point, it's quite possible that his readers, those who are hearing his words, are on the edge of their seats. Many of his readers, many of those hearing the words, would have come from a Jewish background. Has Paul, therefore, really been saying that there is no distinction at all between Israel and the other nations or peoples of the world? I mean, I would imagine that would certainly offend national pride. I don't know if any of us as Americans would like somebody to say that, well, there's no distinction between the United States and other countries in the world. Although, parenthetically, when it comes to salvation, there certainly isn't. We have no advantage in being American when it comes to God's favor or salvation. In some ways, we may be disadvantaged because we've been so materially blessed. But that's another, another issue, perhaps, for another day. Anyway, Paul is saying, okay, what does it mean, then, to be part of Israel? What advantage is there to it if it doesn't really matter in the sense of salvation, being a Jew or being a Gentile. Well, he's not going that far. He's at pains to say that. One reason is it would be theologically problematic. It doesn't just wound national pride, but it's also theologically problematic because it would imply that God's promises in the Old Testament were defective and that it made no difference that the Jews were God's chosen people. Now, Paul tells his listeners that he doesn't mean that at all. It is, of course, an advantage to be a Jew. Now, later in his letter, Paul is going to explain why that's so. He's going to come up with many reasons to talk about. But here he discusses one particularly important thing. The Jews have been trusted with the oracles of God or the words of God. To be a Jew is to be a member of Israel, the nation entrusted with God's words. And these words would include the very words of the gospel as preached by Christ and then Paul and the other apostles. So this brings to my mind a couple of things. First, being entrusted with the words of God is in itself incredibly valuable. History has always been one of my interests. And in seminary, of course, I took a couple of semesters of introductory church history and some other church history classes. But certainly it was emphasized that after the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, the Western Roman Empire, it was the church that preserved the word of God. There was really very little civilization in Western Europe after the collapse of Rome. It's, it's astonishing in a way how far backward civilization fell after Rome collapsed. I mean, when it came to everything, standards of infrastructure, sanitation, 
government, everything, people fell back centuries. And literacy collapsed, of course, too. Learning was a thing of the past. But there were these little isolated islands. There were these monasteries, which were practically the only places in all of Western Europe where there was any kind of learning preserved, where the word of God was maintained. You know, as an aside, when we think about the condition of Europe after the fall of Rome, it was in the, um, the ninth century that Western Europe had kind of a, an early comeback, an early renaissance. It didn't last, but it was there for a while. And the great King Charlemagne united the people under his rule, the Franks. A lot of Germany and France was included in his empire. And he was an exceptionally wise man. And he was a, a follower of Christ. But you know that this king, this powerful king, he was illiterate. So somebody at the very top of society was illiterate. The only people who were literate, there might have been a few nobles, a few aristocrats, but it was the monks, the people in the monasteries who kept things going. And the monks performed a true labor of love in continually, in continually copying and preserving the Bible. Um, you know, I was talking earlier about how, how I had some printer problems tonight, you know, with, I couldn't print out my manuscript, but I still had, after all, the computer here. Uh, back in those days, of course, they didn't have any computers. They didn't have typewriters. They had nothing. They didn't have ballpoint pens. They would literally sit for hours and hours and hours, day after day after day, copying the biblical manuscripts to preserve them. Oh, and of course, no Xerox machines. Um, and they, I mean, and if you look at some of the, the, if you look at photos of some of those manuscripts, they're beautiful. They're tremendously artistic and lovely. So just think of that labor of love that these men of God were, were performing for so many years. They saved the Bible in the West when everything else was collapsing around them. And so that's one reason why it is good to know church history. Um, I mean, it's lovely that today, in our modern era, we can have these you know, beautiful study Bibles, beautifully bound, and we can get them easily. And they have all these notes, and they're all so organized. But the reason why we can hold up these Bibles today is because of the labor of those monks so many centuries ago, over so many centuries. Anyway, that was something I just wanted to share, even if it's not entirely central to the lesson. Another aspect that we might consider about the Word of God is the personal aspect, the family aspect. Every child who is brought up in a Christian family where the Bible is read and is treasured has a great advantage. Statistically, it's been shown that anyone who does not come to faith by, say, their 18th birthday, it may even be earlier than that, has a much less chance, a much lower chance of not of coming to faith afterwards. Not impossible, but the odds are really against somebody who has not already been brought up in the faith, who has not been exposed to the word of God from a young age. So yes, being entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God, is extraordinarily beneficial, extraordinarily important. And so Paul is affirming that for the Jews. Now, the question remains, though, what if some of the Jews were unfaithful, or many of them were? What if, as Paul himself said, 
that they had the words of God but did not honor them. That's what he said in chapter 2. Certainly the lack of faith of some of these people will be to their detriment. To reject the gospel is to reject the words of God. And those who do so will be like branches pruned from a tree. And they will be thrown out and burned. However, their failure of faith does not invalidate the faithfulness or righteousness of God. God's faithfulness, despite Israel's lack of faith, will be seen in two ways. First, God remains faithful to his covenant with Israel, even as he imposes judgment upon Israel for her faithlessness. In other words, his punishment is a sign of his faithfulness. And second, God will be faithful to his covenant by grafting the branches that had broken off back onto the olive tree of Israel if the people represented by those branches did not persist in their unbelief or their disbelief. Paul can talk about that because he experienced it in his own life. He says, after all, in 1 Timothy, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And so there we hear about the justice of God and the mercy of God. And by the way, it's a very, I think, a very reformed Calvinistic thing to hold to in this sense. And it can be very hard to swallow, I think, at first, when you first hear it. And actually, maybe after that as well. God is equally glorified in his judgments of the unrighteous as he is in the salvation of the righteous. And of course, righteous and unrighteous doesn't have to do with our righteousness. It has to do with what God has given us. But hear that again, and this again is very Calvinistic. God is glorified just as much when the unrighteous are condemned, when they are sent to hell, as he is when people are saved and go to heaven. Now think of that. That goes against, I think, our, well, as Paul would say, our human sense. We like to think that God is glorified when people are saved. We don't really like to think that God is glorified when people are condemned. And yet, that is what Paul is saying. That is what Paul is saying. The righteousness of God is shown regardless of how people respond. Another rather shocking saying. In fact, he even says that if there is not one single person who holds to the truth, still the righteousness of God is perfect. And so just imagine that. And again, I think Calvin took this thought and ran with it. Conceivably, there could be not a single person in the entire world who is saved right now. And yet God's righteousness would still be glorified, as if everyone were saved. A hard teaching. And yet, again, I think it is one that is very consistent with what Paul is writing here. 
And there are, there are a few more things I'd like to add. Paul then engages in some, well, some rhetorical questions and answers, because Paul and the new Christians were accused of a number of things. Um, if we look at chapter 7, you know, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. So what does that mean? And again, I think this is something that especially is especially relevant for churches that partake of the Reformed tradition. The idea is a kind of a fatalism. In other words, people may think, well, whether I am predestined to salvation or predestined to condemnation, it has nothing to do with me, so therefore I'll just do what I want. Nothing, after all, can stop me from being saved or condemned. And I've heard, I mean, I've heard that comment, both from unbelievers and from people who are not Reformed Christians. They, you know, they belong to other churches. They have a different understanding of this. It's not, not a bad question, is it? Why not? Do what you feel like. If, in the end, it doesn't really matter. And if, in the end, God's will shall be done. Why not do evil so that God can make good come out of it? I mean, we know that. We look at history, we look at our lives, and we see evil things that have happened. And we know about them, and we know that God can make good come out of that. So why not do evil so that good flourishes? Well, Paul would simply say, not at all. He's very emphatic about that. You do not sin in order that the glory of God is better revealed. That is not what you are supposed to do. That is not your responsibility. Sin is sin. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And indeed, you are commanded to the best of your knowledge and the best of the gifts you've been given to do what is right, to witness to others. And my own explanation, you know, this isn't Paul, it's just me talking based on my understanding of what Paul wrote. And again, it's a good, I think, Calvinistic, Calvinistic thought. If you, if you have been justified by grace through faith, if the Holy Spirit is truly working in your heart, if you are, if you have been regenerated and you are being regenerated by the Spirit, then it would not occur to you to go out and sin. It would not occur to you to be fatalistic. That is not something you would do. That is not something that would even be in your mind as a possibility. Something that Calvin always taught, something that is so reformed, is that as a response to the saving grace that we have received, we will indeed do better things. Uh, Faith produces works. Now, works do not produce salvation, but faith does produce good works that are pleasing to God. And indeed, that is why you've seen reformed people for hundreds of years who have been so active in sending missionaries to all the corners of the world in order to reach people with the gospel. I mean, how, how do you think that South Korea has become one of the most Christian countries in the entire planet? It's because of missionaries who went there and disproportionately Presbyterian missionaries who went there. And think of all of the hospitals that have the name Presbyterian. Think of the institutions of higher learning 
that have Presbyterian roots. Anyone who is a true Christian, including a true Reformed Christian, Presbyterian Christian, Calvinist Christian, will indeed show the fruits of the Spirit. And so that is the appropriate understanding of good works. And that is something that Paul is going to return to over and over again in Romans. But he does want to emphasize, of course, that we are not justified in doing bad works, even if we know that good works in themselves will not save us. And that was important for the Jews of his time to learn. It's important for people today to learn as well. The righteousness of God is an amazing thing. It cannot be, of course, entirely comprehended by our minds. But we can trust that the righteousness of God and the character of God are perfect. And trusting in that, we can be better disciples of Jesus Christ and better witnesses of God's love and care and concern for those that we know. And so, these wonderful words of the Apostle Paul, written almost 2,000 years ago, I pray that they will continue to resonate with us, and that we will continue to be challenged and encouraged by what he has said to us tonight and in the days to come. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, brothers,